Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to talk about that very theme this morning, the theme of worship. Worship matters. And whether you read that title and you see matters of worship or you see worship matters, uh, either way that applies today, we're going to talk about the centrality of worship, what it means to worship the holy God in the way that he's commanded us to worship him. But the upcoming uh, coronation of King Charles III, I know so many are are riveted by that, We fought a lot of wars not to have to care about that, yet, but here we are. We, we still care. We still watch, and um, many will tune in and watch those things. Uh, we don't have that kind of royalty in the United States, but there's still protocol to meet the president or meet other dignitaries, but nothing like what it means to meet the king or the queen of England. And watching through the series The Crown on Netflix, you're kind of fascinated by all the protocol and the rules that goes into uh, going in to meet the queen and whether you're supposed to bow or curtsy or kneel or just nod or not make eye, to- eye contact or make eye contact or kiss her hand or shake her hand uh, or whatever it is. Now the case with the king. There's protocol. There's rules. What it means to be polite, courteous, not to bring embarrassment upon your nation or whoever you're representing. Now, if you can imagine that the monarch or the royalty that you are called to meet is not an earthly uh, dignitary or earthly king or queen, but God himself. You can imagine that the invitation is to come into the presence of God. And we might ask that same question. Are there rules? Is there protocol? Is there a way in which we're to approach God And are there ways in which we are not to approach God? And if there are rules, if there is protocol, wouldn't you want to know what the rules are? Wouldn't you want the person outside the room, as in meeting the queen, to tell you, no, when you go in, you kneel and you rise and you do these things. Wouldn't you want to know what the protocol and the rules are to meet with God? To this point, at Sinai, the people have stood far off. Remember, they've stood far off in the mountain, not even touching the edge of the mountain, lest they die. You remember the scene from last week? The glory of God descends on Sinai and fire and clouds and thunder and lightning and the sound of trumpets and the people are afraid. And as we ended the story last week, 74 people are called up to the mountain. Moses has been there and he's to bring with him now Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, plus now the 70 elders of Israel. 74 people, and then throw Joshua in there later, 75, have been called up to the mountain, while Moses alone has been called into the glory of God to meet with God and to hear from God to give the people what he wants them to hear. To this point in chapter 20, verse 19, the people have wanted nothing to do with this. Remember this, as they heard God's voice from the glory of the glory cloud, and they heard the sound of the trumpet that, that just got louder and louder and louder, and the earth shook, and the thunder and the lightning and the fire. And they said, Moses, it's okay if you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. The people want nothing to do with what's going on here. They see the glory of God. They see his majesty and his splendor there on the mountain, and they are terrified. Moses himself fears Later in the book of Deuteronomy and then recounted in the book of Hebrews, we have it recorded that Moses himself trembled with fear, especially at the thought of being called into the glory of the Lord. Anadab and Abihu and Aaron surely are fearful because they're here in the presence of the Lord. But here as we begin our reading today in chapter 24, verse 9, we see something remarkable. Look with me beginning in chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. 
There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. We see here, number one today, the invitation. A remarkable, shocking invitation. If you had seen what the people had seen to this point on the mountain... And you had exclaimed with those people, we want nothing to do with that. Moses, you speak to us, but the voice of God is terrifying. How shocking and sudden and jarring is it that we come here to chapter 24 and verse 10, and suddenly these men on the mountain see God, the God of Israel. No clouds, no fire, no smoke, no lightning. I'm sure that was all around. But now they see something. The question is, what did they see? We know that they cannot behold the face or the fullness of God and live. And God is going to tell us that in chapter 33, verse 20. No one can see my face and live. So whatever they're seeing must be a portion of the glory of God. We talked about this earlier with the burning bush. There must be some sort of theophany going on here, some sort of physical, visible representation of who God is. Because we see feet, and we see this sapphire and this, this glory that surrounds the presence of God here on the mountain. And notice that they don't get much past his feet in their description. I think about Isaiah in the temple when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He didn't get much past the train of his robe filling the temple, did he? And that stopped the description the description stops here at God's feet, this manifestation of God's presence before the people. And with all the warnings and with all the precautions and all the prohibitions we've seen to this point, do not come near, stay away, stand far away, this is the last thing we would expect. That this veil, as it were, has been removed. And these men see something of God. Now what? What have we come to expect by this point when people see God? Death, fire, brimstone, judgment. I can't help but think of the end of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark when they open the, the ark and they all start melting. You know, that's what I see going on here. But that's not what happens. What happens in chapter 24, verse 11? It says, the Lord did not lay his hand on them, i.e. he did not kill them, but they ate and drank. The Lord did not kill them. The Lord did not wipe them out there on the spot. But they ate and drank there with the Lord in the presence of the Lord. As we go on in chapter 24, verses 12 through 18, we see that Moses is called into the glory of God. And God says at this time, you're going to receive tablets. I'm going to carve tablets for you on which will be the law that I have spoken to you for you to give to the people. And look at what's described in verse 17. The appearance of the glory of the Lord. This is what Moses is being called into. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So outwardly, there's been no change in the scene. The people still see the cloud and the devouring fire there on top of the mountain as Moses himself is called in. And so, so even though we see the same scene and the same things are present, there's a change in the direction, isn't there? The people stand far off, do not come near, while these 70, 74 are called up, and then Moses himself is called in. So what do we see here in the direction? From far off, stand far away, now we see come. We see verbs like they went. We see words like they entered. So why is there a change here? This is the same God that appeared on Sinai. We see the same glory, the same darkness, the same fire, the same cloud. What has changed? We have to understand that from the beginning, God was not keeping his people away out of dislike for them. God was not keeping his people at a distance out of hatred for them. God warns his people to stay away because of his holiness and their sin. 
This is not a lack of love on God's part. It's the height of love. He's protecting them in his love from his holiness lashing out upon their sin. And he says, stay away, stay far off. But we see a change in the direction this week, don't we? Far away, stand away. Now we see come, enter, come up to me. But not without protocols, not without rules, not without instructions. God says, come, but there's going to be a way in which you must come. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, all the 70 elders, no one can come as they simply please. They must come by God's invitation and on God's terms. Now, this begins as a great privilege for Moses. It begins as a great privilege for Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders and then Joshua. But this privilege is now coming down to the people. Where God will be with them and they will be with God. But first they need the instructions. This is how you are to approach God. We begin those instructions in chapter 25, verse 1. Let's just read the first nine verses there. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. We see Moses is charged here to get an offering from the people. As the people's hearts move them, so they are to make a contribution to what? Contribution to what we're going to call the tabernacle. God's dwelling place with the people. If you can imagine this large encampment with all the tribes spread out around the camp, there are tents or booths or tabernacles. That's all it means. These people are tabernacled, encamped about in their dwelling places. And God says, that is exactly where I'm coming. Look at verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is what the collection is for. This is what they're making the contributions to. This sanctuary comes from the same Hebrew root word for holy. It's a holy place. Not just any place, but a holy dwelling place. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Remember the promise God gave back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will be their God, and I will take them to be my people. There's a vow, there's a covenant, there's a promise, almost like a marriage there. I take you to be mine, and I will be yours. And how else is that relationship going to work except that they live with God, and God lives with them? And that's exactly what's being promised here. Take this contribution, take these materials, and make me a tent too. Make me a holy dwelling place in the midst of the people too. This isn't just God's glory on the mountain, inducing fear and trembling and awe and wonder, though it is that. But it is God in all of his glory coming down to live with them. That's what he promised. And now they are to prepare him room. This will not just be any place, though. Look at verse 9. Exactly, highlight, circle, underline, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Not just any tent, Moses. Exactly as I show you in the pattern I give you. God invites them into this relationship on his terms and his terms alone. And the first thing we see that they are to make is what we call the Ark of the Covenant. There in chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. Let's just read those first two verses, verses 10 through 11. They shall make an ark or a box of acacia wood, two cubits, 
and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, circle that, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make it on a molding of gold all around it. So the first thing God says, I want you to make, this is the first instruction, I want you to make a box. About a three and three quarters foot by two and a quarter foot box, overlaid with gold. And you're to attach these, these four rings to the corners of it, through which these poles are going to go, that you will lift it and carry it. And the poles shall not come out. And this is how you're to move the thing, by these poles in the sides. And in chapter 25, verse 16, we see what's going to go inside of the ark. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So make a box, this four-ish by two-ish foot box, cover it with gold, put inside of it the testimony, the tablets that I'm about to make for you. And then in verses 17 through 19, we're going to make a covering for the box. You shall make a mercy seat or a mercy cover, verse 17, of pure gold, underline, two cubits and a half its length, same size as the box, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, and you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim. And so we see on top of this box is to be this cover. The tablets of the law go in, other things will go in. The cover goes on, and on top there are these two angelic creatures called the cherubim, with their wings stretched out over the middle of this box called the mercy seat or the mercy cover. It's a beautiful promise that we see here at the end of this section in chapter 25, verse 22. What is this thing for? Well, it's going to go in the most holy place. It contains the the testimony of the Lord. And God says in chapter 25, verse 22, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You see these beautiful promises? Underline, circle, highlight a lot of that today, so just get used to it. There's a lot of that. I will meet with you. I will speak with you. I will give you. What a gracious move on behalf of God to say, not only am I going to come and I'm going to dwell in your midst, but there as I am with you, I will meet with you and I will speak to you. But this is how it has to be done. Exactly according to the pattern that I have shown you. Down to the cubits, down to the measurements, down to the material, down to the covering. The next piece of furniture we see introduced here is the table for bread In chapter 25, verses 23 through 24, let's read those. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make molding of gold all around it. Here is a table to be made, about three foot by two and a quarter foot table, covered in gold. And we see in verse 30 that what is to be on this table is the bread of of the presence. Now we went through our study in Leviticus. We went through the, the showbread, the table of the, the bread of presence in detail. Go back and listen to that. But know that on this table, about three foot by two foot, overlaid in gold once again, is to be these 12 cakes of unleavened bread. See, that's odd to, to put bread there and in the middle of the sanctuary. Why? Well, obvious reasons, if you really think about it, it's a sign of God's provision, bringing them out of Egypt via the night of Passover. And the unleavened bread they ate, remember? It's a sign of his provision in the wilderness as he rained down bread from heaven for them. It's a sign of God's presence with his people. And it's a sign of their presence with God. Because this table will be there on the inside of the tabernacle. Twelve cakes representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Representing the entirety of the people there in the presence of God. 
It's a reminder of what we just saw at the top of the mountain when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders ate and drank in God's presence. It's a reminder of that, that here in the presence of God, there is food, there is bread, there is sustenance. That's what this is. A sign of fellowship. A sign of relationship between the people and their God. The next piece of furniture is the lampstand. Now, whenever I hear the word lampstand, I can't help but just think of a, a, a floor lamp, and that's not what this is. It's more like a, a candelabra, a menorah, a large one. And this candelabra, uh, starting in, in chapter 25, verse 31, is to have six branches with one in the middle. That means seven. Starting in verse 31, read there. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches, start highlighting some of this floral tree language, six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand on the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower, and one branch, and three cups made like the almond blossoms, each with calyx and a flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. This lampstand ornamented and ornate with flowers and leaves and this language of branches, six branches, the one in the middle, seven total lamps or candles in the presence of the Lord. Why the candles? Well, a sign of God's light with his people. What's going to be on the other side of this area of the tabernacle except the bread of the presence representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the presence of the Lord? And there on the other side is this light The light of God in the presence of his people. The light of God that we saw in the fiery pillar and the cloudy pillar that led them by day and by night through the wilderness. This is a sign of that. A sign of God's light in the law. Showing them the way they should walk and how they should live. It's a reminder of the fire and the glory they saw on the mountain. That's what this lamp represents. And now the lamp is there. In their midst. Before we go any further in verse 40, we have another reminder, don't we? See that you make them after the pattern. See, be sure, be certain. Make certain that you make them after the pattern which is being shown to you. Be sure you're doing exactly what I tell you to do. And then we come in chapter 26 to the tabernacle itself, a tent, a dwelling place, a sanctuary. This is where God, in the midst of all the encampment of Israel, this is where God will live among his people, where he will meet with them, where he will speak with them. A beautiful, glorious, grand tent made with precious materials. This was nothing short of a sacrifice for Moses to ask for these precious stones and precious metals and precious fabric to be made there as a dwelling place for God. And as we come into chapter 26, verse 1, we see this word, moreover, or however, or but. All that's there for is to show you this is the center. This is the center of what I'm telling you. Make the ark, make the table for bread, make the lampstand, make everything else exactly as I showed you. But this is the real deal here. Moreover, verse 1, you shall make the tabernacle. Ten curtains of twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with the cherubim skillfully worked into them. A grand and beautiful Look in verse 2 and see how specific God is even here with the tent. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. The curtain shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of of blue on the edge of the outmost curtain. 
in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outmost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain. Fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain. That is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Down to the measurements, down to the material, down to the color, God gives his people this outline for this tent. About 45 feet in length, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. Specific dimensions, specific colors, specific materials. In verses 7 through 14, we see that there's two other coverings to go on top of the tabernacle. This curtain of goat skin. And then this covering of ram's skin, this other coverings for the tabernacle to keep it sheltered, to keep it dry, to protect it from the elements. And in verses 15 through 29, we see the frames of the structure down to the measurements. Make this frame and this frame and this frame. Chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, we have the instruction to make veils. Let's read, starting in verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Keep circling and underlining that word cherubim. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony, that's the ark of the covenant, in there within the veil... And the veil shall separate for you the holy place, the first chamber of the tabernacle, from the most holy place, the inner, the holy of holies there in the tabernacle. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony, that's the cover, in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. So we're beginning to see the outline. What do we do with all this furniture? We make the tent. We hang the veil. The ark goes inside the veil in the most holy place. And there in the holy place, the chamber, the outer chamber as it were, you have the lamp on one side and the table on the other. These veils, what does it say their job is? To separate to make boundaries, to make distinctions between where the people are, where the priest is to be, and where the high priest alone and the glory of God is to be. Chapter 27, we have instructions for the courtyard of the tabernacle. That is, once you exit the tent, you have a a large area around the tent It's also part of this campus of the tabernacle. 150 feet in length by 75 feet is this courtyard. And there's to be this one central piece of furniture, a bronze altar. Look in chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square. And its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on the four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. The central piece of the courtyard is this bronze altar, a place for sacrifice, a place for atonement, a place of blood. Notice its place outside the tabernacle. Before anyone goes in is this place of atonement, this place of covering. Before anyone goes inside, the priests. Look at chapter 27, verse 8, just in case you forgot. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you. So shall it be. Follow the plan. Follow the instructions. Follow the protocol. This is how it is to be done. In verses 20 through 21 of chapter 27, we see another command for the people to contribute. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, it is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations. By the people of Israel. 
We saw this at the beginning of the instructions, didn't we? Tell the people to bring this, these materials, this metal, these stones. And now we have another instruction. Tell the people to bring oil for the lamp. God commanding the people from their hearts, from their love for him, from the devotion for him, from the wealth that he has given them, bring it to me for my holy purposes and my holy use. Now I find it interesting that God could have just zapped a tabernacle right down into the middle of the people. Couldn't he? He could. There's my dwelling place. I made it according to my instructions, how I wanted it, what I wanted it to look like, what I wanted it to convey. There it is, just coming down out of heaven right there. There's the tabernacle. And he doesn't do that. He tells the people, you bring the material. You bring the curtains. You bring the linen, you bring the yarn, you bring the gold and the silver and the bronze and the oil, you bring it. God is coming to dwell in their midst in this place that they build. God is coming down to be worshipped by them, calling them, inviting them to worship him, but using them and their response of worship to build him this place of sacrifice and worship. And that's the picture that God wants. I, I think about even our doctrine of Scripture. And a lot of religions in the world and a lot of cults and sects that have um, holy books. And most any of them, I think, came in much the same way according to their, their origin stories. Whether it's the Quran or the Book of Mormon. You have this book, dropped out of heaven. Here it is. Translate it, read it, whatever it is. But the Bible, written over thousands of years by 30-something people, languages, different languages, but all breathed into and breathed through by the Spirit of God. He didn't just zap the Bible down to us. He gave it to us through holy men who wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here we have much the same picture, don't we? I could have just zapped my place down there in front of you, but I want you to build it. I want you to sacrifice for it. I want you to contribute to it. I'm going to come be with you, and you're going to build me this place. What a beautiful picture of God's call to worship and our response in worship. And that's the picture God wants. We have a warning here we have to pay attention to, though. You may not worship God as you please. You must worship God as he has commanded. Did you notice those words throughout that I kept making you highlight and underline, at least mentally? God shown the people, God giving a pattern to the people, God saying, make it exactly as I have revealed it to you. This is the word we call, a uh, theological term we use called revelation. It's just God showing them. God showing them how to build, what to build, the dimensions, the colors. This is the way that you're to do this. Not as they wish. God did not say, I'm going to come down to you, so I want you to sit around with the 70 elders and devise some grand thing for me to come live in. And you can make it however you want it. All I care about is that you make it, and I'll come live in it. No, God says, you will do it this way. You're not to invent something. You're not to create something. I will show you what to do and how to do it. And there's consequences for not doing it God's way. Not a few chapters later, we'll look at this next week. They say, hey, we're going to worship God, but we're going to use this golden calf to do it. And God says, oh, no, you're not. That is not how I'm to be worshipped. In the book of Leviticus, we see Nadab and Abihu. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? They were right here with Aaron and Moses on the mountain. And they come and they offer what the Bible says is strange fire before the Lord. They got, they got creative with the incense recipe. And they made their own thing to bring into the presence of God. And God consumed them with fire right there on the spot. You may not worship God as you please. You must worship him as he has commanded and this is the mistake that even we as Christians make. To think that all God cares about is the motive and the heart. Now I want to assure you of something. God sees the heart, not just the outward thing we do. That's an important lesson. God doesn't care as much about the outward thing we do as much as he do, does the heart. 
But that doesn't mean we can just do anything outwardly in worship that we want because God knows the heart. No, God knows the heart, and he still says you're not free to do whatever your heart wishes in worship. They saw the glory of God on Sinai, and they were fearful, and they were trembling. And then we have this shocking invite to come up into his presence, and I'm going to come be with you. I'm going to come dwell with you. And if that's the God... That one we saw on Sinai that terrified us, if that's the one that's coming and he wants us to know how to worship him, I think we ought to sit still and listen to the instructions, don't you? Because that's a terrible, fearful God. He wants to be among his people. He wants his people to come to him. But when we saw that nature of his unmitigated presence and glory on the mountain. That should make us stop for a second and think, I might need to listen for a moment. If he's going to dwell in our midst and if we're going to come to him, we ought to know how. And God says to his people then, this is how. A tent with his covering, these curtains, these veils, layers of separation and chambers An altar where blood will be shed, atonement will be made, covering will be made for the people. An inner chamber where I will place my light with the lampstand and my presence on the table of the bread of presence. And then the most inner chamber, the holy of holies, where God says I will cause my own glory and name to dwell. Where these people, through the priest, will meet with God and he will speak to them. There is awe in this picture. There's glory in this whole invitation. But there are protocols. There's rules. There's patterns to be followed. Do it this way. And there's a warning for us as well. We say, wait a minute, this is the New Testament. This is the New Covenant. We're the church. We're not under the law. We don't have those rules anymore. Yes, we are under a new covenant in Christ. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. Those things were fulfilled forever in the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, we must still come to God on his terms. According to his word, as he shows us, his way. So much of so-called Christian worship has devolved into the creative imaginations of whatever pastor or worship leader or song leader or whatever has been devised to make something happen. And churches are so overrun with so-called creativity and inventiveness all in an effort to be cool or relevant or whatever it is, when God has not called us as a church to invent anything new. When he calls us to worship, he's not calling us to invent ways to worship. We are simply to be faithful to what he has shown and what he has revealed. And what has he revealed to his new covenant people? If it's not a tabernacle and sacrifices and priests and all the rigmarole of the old covenant, what is the new covenant way of worship? Well, you know what God has commanded you to do in worship, don't you? He's commanded you to sing. He's commanded you to pray. He's commanded you to give. He's commanded that his word be read. He's commanded that his word be preached. He's commanded that we observe the ordinances or the sacraments as they are signs of the word preached, made visible to our eyes and tangible with our bodies. That's what God has commanded. And that's why we do what we do. Because the Bible has told us what to do. This is what God has revealed. And here's a secret for you. That's where... The power is. The regular, normal, what we call ordinary means of grace. That which God has revealed for us to do in worship that he says pleases him and brings blessing to us. Sing, pray, hear, eat, 
drink. That's what God has given us. And he has called us not to creativity in those things, but to faithfulness in those things. Because this is about a bigger picture. A bigger picture. Notice the motion of this picture. As I pointed out from the beginning, God up there, his glory up there, while the people must stand far off, do not come near. But gradually, what do we see? Moses comes. Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. And then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. And the 70 elders. And then you throw Joshua in there. Gradually. From fire and smoke and darkness and the lightning and the cloud. To these men seeing the God of Israel. From the fear and the trembling and the dread and the terror to eating and drinking in God's presence. From God being up there, far off, dreadful, terrifying, to saying, I'm going to come and dwell with you. And as God himself promises to dwell in the midst of his people, notice how he says he will do it. That we come to a gate courtyard, an exterior, something outside. We come to an altar where atonement must be made, covering must be applied before we can go into the inner chamber where only the priests go to represent the people. And then into the innermost chamber, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest may go to represent God's people, where his glory and his power are present Did you notice that as we got closer and closer in the diagram and in the framework and the design, we moved from bronze to silver and gold? An increase in the purity and the cost and the preciousness of the very materials. As we get closer and closer to that core of God's presence and glory, even the materials must be better. It's drawing us to that center. That hub of God's glory and his power and his name. And I wonder as I read, and maybe as the people heard then, I wonder, did you you stop to think, we've been here before? Did they stop to think, we've we've been here before? And you say, when have we been there before? God's presence, God's glory with us and us with God. We've been there before. After the fall, Adam and Eve are now naked and ashamed with the knowledge of their transgression, a knowledge of their sin. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that the Lord God came walking in the cool of the day. And it says it almost in passing as if this is something that just happened normally there in the Garden of Eden. This unhindered, pure, whole worship and fellowship between God and man. We were there. Humanity knows that. Lost in sin. Shattered in our rebellion against God. And what do we see in that picture? Except instead of running to God in worship and love and devotion to worship Him and to be in His presence, what do we see except running from God? in shame and fear, hiding far off from him. And yet, still, God came walking in the garden. And he said, where are you? God came seeking. God came looking. Even in their sin and shame, he he covers them with a sacrifice. God providing. Isn't that where we find the people of Israel? Far off, fearful, and rightfully so. And yet God comes to them. And he invites them to come to him. On his terms, his way, covered, but he shows them how. They are his people. He is their God. He wants to be with them, and he wants them to be with him. Adam and Eve left Eden, and God sealed it off with a cherubim. 
Same thing we see intertwined here in the tabernacle, the cherubim. He sealed it off with this cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, which was on the east. And he stationed a cherub with a flaming sword there, never to let man come back in. But you may notice as we read the directions to the tabernacle this morning that the entrance to the tabernacle itself was facing east. And did you wonder why the cherubs were everywhere in the design? Did you wonder why there was a lampstand with fire there in the design? You wonder why in the design of the lampstand is this language of trees and flowers and blossoms and branches because this is a picture of something bigger. This is a picture of our return to Eden. A return to paradise where we walked with God and God walked with us. We in his presence and he there in our presence, unhindered by sin and temptation. This is about a return to the very presence of God in this covenant. But it was just a picture. Even the beauty and the glory of the tabernacle and later the temple, seemingly unsurpassed in all the world in glory and beauty, was just a picture. Because God came down once more, decisively and uniquely, in the incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and that Word who was at once with God and yet was God, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there comes from the verb skinao, first person meaning I dwell, as in living in a tent or sanctuary. So you could read it this way, and some of your versions might have it this way. And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. God came to his people then in these types and shadows through the tabernacle. And it was good and holy and right for them. But they were just shadows of that one who was coming. The Lord Jesus Christ who is the very presence and the glory of God. Who tabernacled with us. The Lord Jesus who is the gate and the door. Who said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord Jesus, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world and the bread of heaven. The Lord Jesus, whose very body was the veil torn for us. The Lord Jesus, who is our great high priest, who leads us into the presence of God. Listen to me today, unbeliever. If you're in the room today and you do not know Jesus, you're not a Christian, or maybe you think you're a Christian, but your knowledge of this kind of worship and this kind of love is so far from you that I would begin to doubt your salvation this morning. Listen to me. If you would come to God, you must come as he has directed. And you must come as he has commanded. And how has he commanded that you come, unbeliever? Through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other gate. There is no other door. There is no other sacrifice or light or provision. There is no access to God apart from Jesus Christ. And you must come to him in faith and repentance. And today can be the day that that happens. Believers, do you know your privilege in this? The worship of God That at the beginning of our service, when Pastor Zane or Matt or myself read the call to worship, we are hearing an invitation from God himself to his people to come into his presence and to worship him. This is not something to treat flippantly or lightly. This is an awesome wonder. That we come here through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to worship God and to be in his presence. Oh, how that must affect everything we think about worship. 
From beginning to end, from our corporate time together to our individual lives and expressions of worship. This incredible invitation to come into the presence of a holy, righteous God through Christ. This is a return to Eden. And God says to all those who were once far off, come near by the blood of my son. Come, worship, listen, talk, eat, drink. Come be with me. This is not some program that we put on to tickle your ears or to suit your tastes. This is an audience with the glorious God of the universe where he meets with us and he speaks to us. And we would be bored by this. We would grow tired of this. We would doze off and sleep during that The God of the universe speaking to us. Maybe we should remember what this is that we're doing. Maybe we should remember the glory of the God that we worship. Maybe we should remember that even this is just a picture of that day. When all of God's saints, from Eden to Sinai to Dumas gather around his throne in his presence through the blood of Christ as we sing holy, holy, holy. Maybe we should reorient our thoughts and our hearts for worship now in light of who God is. Maybe in light of how we treated him. Maybe in light of how we treated this. We should reorient our thoughts in light of that day and that glory to which all of this Simply points. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? I'm going to give you just a few praying points. And then we're going to spend a few moments in quiet prayer before we respond in song. I'm just going to give you some helpful, I love my bullet points, my little helpful, prayerful bullet points for this time of reflection. And as you sit with your head bowed and your eyes closed in prayer to the Lord, I want you to listen to what I say and what I invite you to say to the Lord. And if that resonates with where you are in your spirit and your heart, you say those things to him. If you need to go further, say those things to him. Hey, God, I'm sorry for what I've made of worship. About me, my preference, my taste, Me, me, me. God, I'm sorry for my flippant attitude and my hurried spirit in your presence. As if there was any place better for us to be. God, I'm sorry for my lack of awe and wonder at this privilege. God, I'm sorry for discounting what this cost you. The blood of your only son, Jesus Christ. God, I'm sorry. And I humbly repent. Help me to worship you as you deserve. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.